musician. Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Comedy Soul Show here uh, on Raw Dog Channel 99 on Sirius Radio. My name is Noam Dorman. I'm the owner of the Comedy Cellar. I'm here as always with my friend Daniel Natterman, world famous comedian, uh, semifinalist on board, but okay. Um, and, and Periel Ashenbrand, our producer, who's looking very nice this evening. She doesn't usually doll up, uh, but um, I think she must have read some of Mr. Markovitz's columns and she, uh, she wanted to impress him. Anyway, we have a, a, a guest tonight that interests me very much. His name is Daniel Markovitz. He's a Guido Calabrese professor of law at, uh, professor of law at Yale Law School and founding director of the Center for the Study of Private Law. Markovitz publishes weekly and widely, I'm sorry, Markovitz publishes widely in a range of disciplines, including in science, the American Economic Review, and the Yale Law Journal. His current book, The Meritocracy Trap, develops a sustained attack on the American meritocracy. Good evening, sir. By the way, nice is Guido- to be here, thank you. Is, is, I'm sorry, is Guido Calabrese um, the guy who is Jewish but has an Italian last name? Uh, so uh, he is, I believe, a practicing Catholic, but uh -huh. he does have Jewish ancestors. I don't know why that's stuck in my head. I guess that's a very Jewish thing to remember the-, yeah, the He does have Jewish ancestors. All right, so- Fiorello um, LaGuardia also uh, is, is in that category. Fiorello LaGuardia and, so, and Christopher Columbus, right? Um, no, that's unknown. Sorry. So, uh, so let's start. So you have a theory um, about how the meritocracy has changed, how at one time there actually was a meritocracy and now it's more of um, an elite in group entrenching itself in the plum positions in life. Can you give us like a, a rundown of your theory about that? Yeah, so look, meritocracy seems like a pretty good idea. Um, it's hard to argue with the idea that people should get ahead based on their own accomplishments and not say their parents' class or their race or their religion. And in the early years of American meritocracy, which was in the period right after the Second World War, that's how it worked. Um, and partly it worked because the old American elite, to be blunt, was not that smart and was not that hardworking. And so if you gave people an opportunity to pull themselves up by working hard and performing, it turns out that the elite people didn't do so well. And the people who came from outside the elite, who were sort of hard workers, smart, hard scrabble people, did really well. So at Yale, for example, in the 50s, um, if you went to a fancy prep school, you were like one third as likely to be in an academic honor society than if you went to a public school. All the smartest kids were public school kids. And then what happened is the group that got ahead by being meritocrats. They were different from the old elite. They had an almost endless appetite for educating their children. And they know how to train better than anything. You ask any fancy professional parent in America today, how do you train your kids? And they will know. And so the rich now just out-educate, out-train their kids. They spend millions of dollars literally on educating their kids. And that means that middle-class kids, working-class kids can't keep up. And it's not because they don't try and it's not because they're not capable of it. It's because they don't have this massive investment made in them. And education works. And so now what we have is that the very idea of meritocracy is the way in which the elite perpetuates itself. And, and what year did this, did we turn the corner on this? Well, the decade of the 60s was the decade when meritocracy really got going. And I would say the decade of the 80s is the decade when the elite really started to entrench itself. Yeah, because, okay, I, I graduated high school in 1980. Dan's a um, little bit after. What year were you, Dan? 87. 87. And I remember, I didn't come from rich parents at all. My father was, uh, uh, I'm first generation. My father came from Israel. He'd driven a cab. Um, and then he opened a restaurant and a nightclub. Um, the comedy cellar that I owned didn't even exist when I was in high school. I never studied for my SATs, nor did my friends. And um, yet many of them wound up in Ivy League schools, wound up in Ivy League graduate schools. Dan's a little bit later. He went to University of Pennsylvania. So I didn't feel, it's, it's just anecdotal in terms of myself, I didn't get that kind of um, skilled parenting to uh, guide me towards the elite, but yet I did find myself 
uh, achieving in, in those circles. So, so was I just right around well, the point? So I'd say that, so I'm almost exactly your age. I graduated high school in 1987 also. Um, went to a public high school in Texas would now, I guess, be called an urban public high school. So it wasn't a fancy suburban school. It was a straight up city public high school. Um, yeah, I went to and, public uh, school, I should say. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, and when I got, I went to Yale College there, and um, my parents were professionals. So I had certain advantages. So I guess I'd say two things. First of all, a lot of kids I went to high school with seemed to me to be obviously just as smart and hardworking as I was. And, you know, you can tell if you're in school with somebody, you know, they get the answer right on the test, you don't. That's pretty clear that they know what they're doing and you don't. Um, but they didn't get into as fancy colleges as I did. And I think a significant part of the difference was that my parents gave me various kinds of enrichment. That their families, they didn't have as much money in them or as much education in them, that their families found hard to give them. So I would say that you and I were at the generation where it was still possible, but there were real advantages. But fast forward 15 years or 20 years. Um, in 1995, I want to say, the University of Chicago accepted 71% of its applicants. Last year, the University of Chicago accepted 6% wow. of its applicants. How much of that is due to population growth and how much of that is due to um, whatever? It's due to a bunch of things. More people are applying. More people from overseas are applying. Um, it is a striking fact about America that if you look at the 10 most prestigious colleges, pretty much all of them existed 100 years ago, and pretty much all of them had the same number of students 100 years ago, even as the country has two or three times as many people in the world, many, many more. So it's just gotten harder, harder and harder. And it's now, you know, at 6% admissions, if you ever made a mistake, you know, if you fell in love and didn't study for finals, if your family had a financial setback and you couldn't work right, and you get a bunch of C's one semester, you're not getting in to Stanford. And so, so the so kids who get in are the kids who never made a mistake. And in order never to make a mistake, you need so much support as a child. How much uh, difference if you get, don't get into Stanford, but you get into UCLA, or I'm from Connecticut, you get into UConn, and you work hard there, how much are you fucked because you didn't get into Stanford? Well, so I'd say two things. First of all, if you get into UConn, it's a good school. You're going to do okay. Um, on the other hand, just to give you an idea, if you look at the fanciest investment banks, and these are places, you know, that pay people, first year people, 100,000 senior people, millions, they recruit only at five or six places. They don't even recruit at UConn. If you look at the law firm in New York, which has the highest profits per partner, that's a law firm called Wachtell Lipton. They have profits per partner over $5 million. I think 96% of their partners went to six law schools. Wow. So, so let's, let's go through a few. Go ahead, Dan. You want to follow up? No. So basically, you know, you go to a pretty good college, you're going to do okay, but you're going to have a real problem if you want to break into the jobs that make millions. Um, so let's go, go through a the few of the uh, things which just come to mind. I'm sure they come to other people's minds. Um, uh, how many... How much, how do I put this? How many spots are no longer available because of legacy admission? Is that, is that a constant or is that uh, mushrooms? So the irony is that legacy admissions are less powerful today than they used to be. Okay. But at the same time, college, body, college student bodies at rich colleges are richer than they used to be. Uh, and, and how do you account for... Um, Asians who are obviously not elite and are being limited at the, at the best schools. Yeah. Um, so uh, first of all, my personal view, and I'm, now I'm speaking as a citizen, not as a scholar, uh, is that the way in which some of the best schools effectively, I believe, have quotas for Asians is immoral. Um, I'm so, with you. So that's, that's, my, that's my view. And I say that as somebody who also is in favor of affirmative action. Right, they're not, they're not in conflict. And I think they're not in conflict, properly understood. That's my view. Yeah, um, I but I speak now as a citizen, not as a scholar. Um, what I can say as a scholar is that the kind of meritocracy we're talking about is really complicated because compared to categorical exclusion based on race, it, it's a real way for people to get opportunity. 
so that you know exceptional people, even now, can get ahead in a way in which they couldn't if you had to have the right parents or the right ethnic background to get good jobs. At the same time, you know, most of us are not exceptional, we're average. And if you wanna have a fair and well-functioning society, you want a society that functions fairly and well for average people. And average people need a lot of training to do really well. So interestingly, for example, if college admissions were based exclusively on the SAT, exclusively on the SAT, elite colleges would be whiter and less Asian, not more Asian. I didn't know that. Um, why is it, so the, what is it that's putting pressure? I thought the Asians were doing very, very well standardized tests. It is true that some groups of the Asian population do well and do well enough that, elite, that the, the Ivy League has quotas or has some, some push against them. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that overall, the effect of wealth swamps that effect. Right. And if you look just at the size of the group of people, there's a study by a guy named Carnival out of Georgetown that cranks the numbers. That shows okay, that. and, and um, as a scholar, you have to account for this. How do, how do you control for genetics, the idea that the smartest people have married each other? You know, the, you know right. The right. So, so um, that's a deep question. Um, I am on the side of nurture, not nature. Thousands of scholarly articles have been written about this, and it's an interminable debate, and I'm not going to be able to settle it to the satisfaction of a skeptic. But, but here are, I think, three kinds of thoughts that are relevant. The first is that the correlation between parents and children's IQs has not been going up. But the correlation between parents and children's academic performance has been going up. Well, you want, maybe you should explain that because. Yeah, so if, so if you test infants or two-year-olds and you try to figure out, like, you know, there are these tests of infant or young person's intelligence. I'm a little skeptical of them, but let's say we believe them. And you ask if, what's the relationship between the kid's performance on these tests and parents' performance on these tests? If you had a kind of genetic story in which as meritocracy gets going, people with intelligence genes start marrying each other you would expect that over time, the performance of the young kids would be more nearly like the performance of the parents. And that's not been happening. And so that's evidence against the genetic story. Right. Um, um, I'm, I'm, I, I tend, I lean, I'm not leaning towards uh, genetics explaining um, the elite, I'm not saying that, but I, just as a parent and from what I've read, and, and not just with intelligence, but with musical ability and any other discernible talent that I've been able to see in my kids, it really seems like it's genetic. It, it really does to me. I don't know if you're a parent, but the, the differences from birth just seem stark. You know, so that's totally fascinating. Um, I am a parent and I have exactly the opposite experience. That, that's why I think it's gonna be very hard, you know, People of good faith can disagree about this. Yes. You know, my experience with my children and in my own life is uh, anything that I was taught. And whatever my kids are good at, they were taught. Now, I guess that's not, you know, like I have a daughter who has a beautiful singing voice. That probably not. You know, if you're tall, you weren't taught that. I mean, it, you know, we all know that for basketball. But, um, yeah, Other I, things yeah, I, I see. Mus- I see musical ability as a neurological function, just like mathematical ability certainly must be. And I just can't believe that that's not significantly um, passed down. But you know, we're not going to settle that. That's that's we're not going to settle that. That's right. But here, here's one thing that's really important that I think we can probably agree on, and, and this is this is an important part about this debate. Whatever is the case about the genetic component, the genetic distribution of natural talent is gonna be sort of symmetrical. And it's gonna be kind of compressed. You know, the difference between the, the genetic natural talent of somebody at the very top and somebody at the middle is gonna be kind of small. Yeah. We see that everywhere. But well, the income distribution is incredibly skewed. And so if you want to explain the income distribution, you need to have something more than just the genetics. So let's get to wealth inequality. Let me just say one other thing about that. I've always likened all this stuff, and I think it is a helpful analogy to the idea of planting a tree. And I always feel like if you plant a tree or plant a seed and you give it the requisite amount of sunlight and nourishment, you really can't affect 
what kind of tree it's going to be. But when you deal in deprivation, that's when you begin to see, or trauma, that's when you begin to see uh, something really not reaching its potential. And I think they can both be true. I, I, I'm skeptical that um, intensive tutoring of me would have gotten me to perform that much better because I had a pretty rich life to begin with. But I think there are communities out there that are so deprived of richness day to day that the amount of effect that tutoring and, and, and prep courses and whatever it is could have on them could be enormous without undermining the argument that their basic intelligence is genetic. You follow what so, I'm saying? Yeah, I see that. So let me, let me say three things about that. The first is I think you're right. The deprivation and in particular trauma are extremely damaging to childhood development. Um, and especially trauma that goes untreated. And wealth, family wealth makes a big difference there. There's a sociologist at Stanford who did a fantastic study in which she looked at pregnant mothers who were caught up in the Chilean earthquake, but not physically injured. Mm -hmm. So the mothers experienced trauma while pregnant, but they weren't physically injured. And she looked at what happened to the kids. And the story is that the kids struggled a lot just because their mothers had undergone trauma while they were in the womb. But the children whose mothers were rich overcame their struggles yeah. because the rich parents paid for care, tutors, psychologists, whereas the children whose mothers were not rich struggled their whole lives. So trauma is a big deal. That, that's, that's one thing that I think is important. Yeah, Go ahead. Go on. No, no, go no ahead. keep going. No, I'd say it's, it's kind of like the law of diminishing returns. Like I, I've known times I've really, something I'm not that good at. And I've really, really, day I've tried to get better at it. And I can really only move the needle a little bit, I notice. And then if I put it down for a month, I go right back to where I, I was, you know? Yeah. So I'm like, well, this, I'm, I'm, I've hit the wall in terms of my own right. innate ability at this. So, but, so, yeah, but go ahead. So some things fun. are like that. Um, but, but here are a couple things that aren't like that. And here's a way in which the rich get their children ahead through meritocracy. Um, Larry Summers, when he was president of Harvard, told the following story. There was a kid um, who was just on the bubble. Should he get in? Shouldn't he get in? Uh, in the end, I think he got in. And one of the reasons he got off the bubble is that he was totally fluent in Chinese. Now, why was he totally fluent in Chinese? He was totally fluent in Chinese because in addition to his school, from age 12 or 13 through 18, he had had three or four private Chinese tutor sessions a week, which will make you fluent in Chinese, even if you're not a language genius. Yes. Now, that's a, the funny thing about it is it's a real accomplishment. Yeah. It's, it's not like alumni preference. It's hard, you have to work, you have to try, you have a skill, the skill is valuable. But if your parents don't have twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars a year to spend on Chinese tutoring. You're not going to get that skill. Right. I, I want to just chime in briefly and ahead, say Dad. that four to five hours a week of Mandarin will get you conversational. I have grave doubts it will get you anywhere near native level fluency. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, I think that's right. But, but it'll get you something that's pretty impressive when you apply to college. Dan taught himself French alone in a room with a book, and he's fluent, and he actually performs. This is true. Well, he's in French. Books, videos, you know, movies over 15 years, and yeah. I'm not native level fluent, but I'm pretty good. Yeah. So that's okay. why I have some in, and that's French, which is 80 billion times easier than Chinese. So I just, that's why I say that, and I just have Yeah, I get that. I get that. So yeah, let I, me give I, you I, one other kind of story, because this is institutionalized. Um, if you look at fancy prep schools in America today, almost none of them have a cheerleading squad. Almost all of them have women's sports teams at the sports that Ivy League colleges field varsity women's teams in. Yeah, well, they game the Crew, same. field hockey, fencing, squash. So what happens is if you go to those schools, you get trained in a sport that then the colleges you're going to apply to value. And again, you have to work hard. You can actually play the sport. You're not lying about it. Right. But at the same time, if you go to the public high school I went to, especially as a woman, you're in the drill team or the cheerleading squad, and Harvard is not admitting somebody because they're a cheerleader, but they are admitting somebody if they do women's lightweight crew. 
Well, that's a totally legit point. Um, and I, I would hope that the universities would address that because that's just not fair to, right. to some extent. Um, so how does this all translate into um, wealth inequality, which you, which you regard as a very serious problem, correct? Yeah. Um, so uh, the top 1%, let's talk about income first rather than wealth. Um, the top 1% by income today has about 20% of all the income in the country. Top 1% has 20% of income. Okay. And 1% is what income range? What does that start? Do you know? Uh, it varies year to year, $400,000 a year and above. Households. Households. Um, so that's a fifth of all the income. Um, that's two to two and a half times as big a share of income as the top 1% had in 1960. Can I just stop you there? Because 400000 is so low, it, it's got to be a pretty uh, a big steep curve between the top 1% up to ridiculous Good. wealth. Because 400000 is not that much more than 100000 right? I mean, you know. Well, try living on 100000 if you were living on 400000 Well, it I mean, it's way, way closer to 100000 yeah. than it is to the super I get it. wealthy. Right. 400,000 so you're still saving right. for college and worrying. Yeah. Yeah. If I have three kids, 400,000 and a house, I want to take a New York car and, and save for three colleges. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. not, you know, I'm not on easy street there, right? Yeah, no, that, a lot of people experience it that way. And, and I think on the one hand, that's totally true to experience. But on the other hand, if you want to understand our politics today, you know, median household income. So this is halfway up the distribution in America mm-hmm. is 60,000. Wow. Okay, so 400,000 is over six times the median household income. So 150 million people approximately or are living on $60,000 or less. Yeah, households, households. Household. Households. So yeah, household income of $60,000. And how is that compare, compared to uh, 1975 or something? Or so how median household income has been more or less flat. Flat, in, in constant dollars, right? In constant dollars. Not quite flat, but like... You know, economists disagree. It depends on how you count, but, but not steeply up. Um, now, now, what I've never understood is, and, and I'm, I mean, that bothers me, what I've never understood is why I should worry about wealth inequality. And, and, I, and I think to myself the following. There's like, I, I should Google it, but I'm sure there's like, um, you know, let's just make up some numbers. 500 of the world's billionaires are American, right? And let's say mm-hmm. 300 or something, or it's, it is something like that, are Chinese. If those 300 Chinese billionaires were to decide to emigrate to the United States of America, and now they exacerbated wealth inequality, would we be worse off all of a sudden as a nation because of that? I think we'd be better off. So uh, I'd say that um, there'd be some advantages. There's no doubt about that. Um, But there'd be at least two kinds of disadvantages, which I think are very great. Mm -hmm. The first is, Concentrated wealth of that magnitude completely distorts democracy and democratic politics. How? Um, first of all, didn't help Bloomberg. Yeah, most obvious. Well, no, that's not true. Or Tom Steyer. I mean, that's not true. So uh, Bloomberg became mayor of the most important city in New York, which he would not have done if his personal fortune had been a hundred thousand dollars. Fair enough. It didn't get him the presidency. Yeah. And, um, and also when he became, I, I'm not actually disagreeing with you, yeah. but m- the bang for the political buck in uh, 2001 or whatever it was, that he, or 2000, is way different than the world of free yeah. uh, uh, bandwidth now. Yeah. I th- although I think what those stories show is that you can't buy the presidency, but you can buy an enormous amount of influence. I mean, I don't know if AOC could have done what she did Back in the time the bloom. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And there's an outsider route in. But if you look at who donates to early candidates in the primaries, it's overwhelmingly very rich people. And those donations make candidates viable. And people get something for that. If you look at who donates to the campaigns and the packs of committee chairs, it's overwhelmingly very rich people. So that's one part of it. Another part, which people don't pay enough attention to, is that if you're really, really rich, you can hire accountants and bankers and lawyers to structure your affairs in such a way that the government can't regulate you. So, you know, I'm a middle class, upper middle class guy, whatever. 
um, my town raises my real estate taxes. What do I do? I pay them. Right. But if I'm a billionaire, what do I do? I hire bankers and lawyers to structure my affairs in such a way that everything is held in certain kinds of offshore accounts with generation skipping trusts and family trusts to diminish the valuation. And I don't pay the taxes and I'm not breaking the law. What I'm doing is I'm using the skill of elite professionals to make me unregulable. I'm, and that's I'm, also undemocratic. Are you sure about that? I mean, you know, I, I know rich people I and mean, I mean, maybe you're talking about not income taxes, but income is income. How do you, how do you hide income? No, no. Labor income, wage income is almost unhideable. Yeah. Capital income is almost untaxable. But how, do, how, do, how are the wealthiest making their money? They're making it partly through labor. I argue more through labor than people on the left want to acknowledge. But they're also often getting paid in ways that are very easy to shield from taxation. Stock so on. carried interest of hedge fund people. This is taxes, capital gains. Yeah. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I get all this, and, but I'm saying to me, it's like, it's such a small number of people. Some of the people I know who are this wealthy, like Bezos or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, or, you know, I, I don't know who these people are. It's like, I don't know how they could not be that wealthy given the fact that markets are global now. And no matter what, I mean, no matter what you say about Jeff Bezos, every time a book is sold on Amazon, he is entitled to a penny of it, and, and even at that rate, it's gonna get tremendously wealthy, so what can you do about it, you know? Well, look, it's complicated, um, but there are a lot of things that could be done about Amazon. So Amazon, as-, as I love as, Amazon, what, don't touch my Amazon. It's, it's gotten me through the pandemic, look, like don't mess with my Amazon. I get it, you know, Amazon, here's the thing, this is really important, and this is a fundamental trade-off that we as a country have to think about. Amazon is great for the American consumer, right? It is terrible for the American worker. Is it? Yeah. In 1965, retail was a middle-class job. It was dominated by small-scale stores where the people who worked sometimes had ownership stakes. They were managers. They had discretion. They controlled the circumstances of their work. They had to learn skills, and they were paid middle-class wages. Amazon warehouse workers today unbelievably badly treated. I don't know how much time you spent looking into this, but Amazon, you know, do you know about their, their wristband with the haptic feedback? No, but I know the story about the peeing in bottles and-, and Yeah, kind of they, have a, they have a patent on a system where they'll be able to tell to within like two feet where you're moving and they're gonna buzz your wrist if you scratch your head too often because you're not filling boxes often enough and you're not getting paid a lot. And, and this is a terrible thing for workers. And so also, part of is, yeah. No, no, finish. No, I was just saying the, the question is, you know, we can have a society where everybody gets paid more and things cost more. I mean, also, so, I know, wait, can I just tell you, I know you don't care what I think, but, um, you know, during, <laughs> while, while we're, heralded, what? <laughs> I can't, of course I care what you think. During the um, front of the company, yeah, Perry. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, right, exactly. While we're heralding them, you know, these heroes and on the front lines of the coronavirus, these guys are protesting and striking because they have no protection. They're getting paid like bullshit wages. I mean, it's unconscionable. I got to tell you this. In my experience as a boss, I, as, in terms of working conditions, some of what you're describing. Um, seems like there should be legislation about that. And, and maybe you're right, because Bezos spread so much money around, it's, it's uh, tough to get the, the legislation. So I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say that that sounds right to me. However, the real horror stories that I've heard from people at work have been much, much more often in mom and pops, small places, off the book works, off the book jobs, um, where it's under the radar, where there is no worry about a worker tweeting out. I mean, Amazon, no matter what, they do have a tremendous PR concern all the time, and they can't keep it a secret how they're treating workers. And I would, I would wonder if you broke Amazon up, if you would see anything change in terms of the way workers are treated. And I also wonder if there isn't, like if you wanna raise workers' wages, 
maybe we do need to reconsider immigration. I mean, Paul Krugman even used to talk about you flood the country with, with low-skilled workers, you, you suck wages down, you know? That does make sense to me. I, I'm sorry to keep talking about, I have a restaurant and um, of course, if, if, we were, if, if there was a shortage of labor, I would have to pay more. I mean, it may put me out of business, but I would have to pay more, you know? Um, so, so on the immigration front, this is again, like a totally contested area. Yeah. I think the best modern economics actually has the other view. That it, is, it is true that when more workers come in, they increase the supply of workers and they reduce wages. But it is also true that when more workers come in, they increase the demand for goods, they increase the wealth of the economy, and that drives wages up. And I think it's both. I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I've always thought that this can both be happening at the same time. Yeah. You can aggregate yeah. it into wages going up. Right. But it still may be responsible for Amazon wages going down you know, you know yeah, what I'm saying? yeah it could it, look it could be it could be uh, my you know my read of the economics and you know i'm not going to cite you papers uh, on this show but if we wanted to communicate offline i could send you some papers uh my read is that the net effect is positive for american workers um, net effect yes but we learned if we've learned anything over the last few years i'm sorry daniel natterman I, you're both dan so um I'm daniel uh, um that um Aggregate measures tend to really mask some really yeah. serious problems yeah. going on. We thought some that, people are getting hurt. Yeah, we, we didn't know about the white working middle class, the white working class suffering because aggregate measures were all positive. Yeah, no, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not denying that some people are getting hurt. Dan, go ahead, Daniel so, Natterman. I believe you said that for that wealth inequality, there are two uh, bad effects. One of it, one of which was concentration of political power. But I don't know that you got to the second. I didn't data. get to the second one. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I probably so the second about. one, um, I, I can't tell you the mechanism. I, I can tell you a historical regularity. Um, in the past few years, a bunch of economists, historians, political scientists have published these massive comparative studies of concentrated wealth across all of human experience, across all space and time, all societies. And the lesson of those studies is that in all of history, there is only one society that has suffered as great a concentration of wealth as the United States has today, in as narrow and elite as we have today, that didn't you end up- you want to guess? What? I just wonder if we could play a guessing game to make it fun. Well, we'll play, let, me finish, let me finish what they're doing and then you can guess. That didn't end up losing a war or succumbing to a revolution. There's only one example. What do you think the example is? It did not succumb to a war or lose yeah. a war. And, and Every other society that had this kind of concentrated wealth got overrun by enemies or overrun by its own population. There's only one that didn't. There's only one that did not. Yeah. Uh, no, many guesses. No, I don't have a guess. Go ahead, Dan. I thought you had something in mind. I don't know. Well, I thought maybe you'd have something in no, mind. No, I'm it's not an optimistic story. That's a hint. It's a what? It's an optimistic answer. Give it to us. I don't know. It's I, us in 1929. Oh. <laughs> oh that's a trick Great. question. That's a trick question. <laughs> well, my son is here. I'm upstairs. I'll come up in a few minutes. I'm almost done. So, so you know, so we're in, we're in bad shape, but we've proved able to get out of such bad shape before. Well, I mean, a sample size of, uh, well, how many, a sample size of very few and different sizes. I, I don't know. Um, but you, okay, so you, and in order to counteract this, because I just want to say, I think that the idea that people can now sell whatever it is they're selling to a billion people or three billion people, that changes everything. And you're, it's never going to be like it was in terms of the inability to, to get wealthy. And, and I, I don't, I'm yet to be convinced that is our serious problem. I don't mean it's no problem. I, I don't mean that. But I'm, I'm, I just haven't yet been convinced of it. Well, you want to have a one-time wealth tax, correct? Well, I want to have a one-time wealth tax on account of the, the pandemic. So that's a separate idea. So you don't want a wealth tax to counteract the in wealth inequality in general? I would probably favor a wealth tax to counteract inequality in general, but that's more controversial. The one-time wealth tax I argued for in the Times was connected specifically to the pandemic and, and to this idea that although anybody can get sick, it turns out that the people who are bearing the costs of this disease 
are working people and the rich are sitting at home, keeping their jobs, staying healthy. And if we're being attacked as it were, which is what we are by a, by a, a, a terrible, terrible malady, everybody should be doing their part. And so the richest people should be carrying the weight of paying for the pandemic. That, that's the idea there. I like yeah. that idea. I don't think that, uh, that seems reasonable what to me. No, no, Dan, no. <laughs> What would, what would the wealth tax be? Two out of three is pretty good. <laughs> what would the wealth tax be? The wealth be the tax, same? and at least somebody's got to pay for it. What are the terms? Nobody has to pay for it. Nobody pays for anything. What, what, what are the terms? What would I propose? I would propose 5% uh, of all household wealth in excess of $2.5 million. So on $2.6 on $2. million, you pay $50,000 or something like that? You pay, you pay on $2.6 million. No, on $2.6 million, you pay $5,000. $5,000. Yeah. Oh, two point five thousand. Yeah. Um, I made that math mistake. You would remit. Yeah, I, I was thinking of a, of a million. <laughs> I, I, I meant three. Three. Well, what, what, instead of a wealth tax, why not just a high uh, bump up the income tax this year as a one-time thing? You could do that. I think the reason, the thought I had in, behind this is that this is kind of an exceptional event, and we should pay for it out of the store of our accumulated good fortune. The thing about the income tax is, you know, some people make a lot of money one year. They don't make a lot of money another year. I, I don't know how to think about those people, but, but any household that has two and a half million dollars in assets is doing pretty well. And, and so that, that was the thought. That was the thought behind this. Can you so you're going, to assess, you're going to assess somebody's property and then, and then uh, force them to come up with the money to pay it and borrow well, it? Well, so there'd be, there'd be ways of dealing with that. There'd be ways of dealing with that. Um, first of all, the two and a half million dollar exclusion means that not a lot of people are going to have no liquid assets who are wealthier than two and a half million dollars. Second of all, there's a way you could, for example, um, lift the rules against early withdrawal from retirement accounts if the withdrawals are made to pay the tax. So there's no penalty. There are a bunch of things you could do like that. You could also allow people if you wanted to, to spread their payments out over time. I mean, there are lots of ways to administer this. And, and those are details we could talk about, but it can be done in a way that's not disruptive. And what would, and now would it to go for pay for the, the deficit spending that we've done during the pandemic? Is that the idea? Or is, or is just to, to make people feel that they have skin in the game? It turns out if there, if there were 100% compliance, which of course there wouldn't be, but just round numbers, 5% of household wealth in excess of $2.5 million is $2 trillion, which is almost exactly what we've spent so far. All right. I mean, uh, you know, I, my, my biggest fear of that is, um, I, I hate to say this, I hate to say this vul vulgar thing, but I, but I, uh, it's, the, it's the thing that keeps coming to my mind when my father used to tell me about when a bartender was stealing, why he didn't want to give them a second chance. He would say that stealing is like masturbating. It's very hard to do it only once. And <laughs> I think the idea of a one-time wealth tax is very wishful thinking. Once, once you get that hooks in it. It, it could it, it it could be it could be but the fact that it would be triggered look here, here's a counter um we just had a two trillion dollar stimulus that passed the republican senate almost unanimously yeah well I these are exceptional that. times where things are possible that ordinarily would not be i would argue that the choice of word stimulus is um uh it almost almost you know betrays your politics there because it's not a stimulus. It was it, the government shut everybody down, and it's, it's, it's sustenance is what it is. I mean, you know, two trillion sustenance. Yeah. Could you believe that the Republican Senate? Yeah, because, yes, I do. Spending? I do because I think that from their point of view, some of which I share, some of which I don't, they don't. This doesn't fit their supply side trickle down theorems. This is people are we're taking we're taking away their right to make a living. It's more like a taking, like a government taking. You yeah, know? I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. I can see that. But again, that same kind of exceptionalism might mean that the wealth tax would be exceptional. Yeah. That's, the, that's the point. It wouldn't happen again because it took something extraordinary to get it to be possible. All right. I think, I think we covered it. I don't know what else. It's, it's, it's also interesting. I mean, I, I am... Um, well, I want to know what he wants to do about wealth inequality in general, not just in the COVID crisis. Yeah, that, I'll answer that. And then also tell us what we do about the elite problem in the Ivy Leagues and stuff. How do we, how do we do, what do we do about there? The so, two so I think, you know, this is a long story and these two are related, but, but here's a way to think about it. Um, private education, not just, in the, not just at college, 
private preschool, private elementary, private middle school, private high school, uh, is an enormous expense that rich people devote almost exclusively to their kids. Um, median public high school in America spends twelve to fifteen thousand dollars a year on every student. Mm -hmm. A really rich public high school like Scarsdale spends maybe thirty thousand. I live right next, next town over Ardsley, so yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So notice thirty thousand. That's almost three times as much as the median. Um, in New a really, York, yeah, yeah. A really rich private school spends seventy-five thousand. Okay, now all these private schools, 75,000 per kid per year, all these private schools are taxed as nonprofits. The universities are also. That means that there's a huge public subsidy to them because alumni donations are tax deductible, their endowments can grow without tax. Um, at Princeton University, somebody recently calculated the public subsidy amounted to $100,000 per Princeton student per year in lost tax revenues. Wow. Compare that to the public subsidy at Rutgers, State University of New Jersey, $12,500 per student per year. The public subsidy at Essex County Community College, $2,500 per student per year. So the Princeton kids are getting a bigger public subsidy than the community college kids by a factor of 40. Wow. And there are more kids at Princeton whose parents are in the top 1% of the income distribution than the entire bottom half. So no more tax deductibility for these institutions. So all these institutions, not just the universities, my view is unless they dramatically expand enrollments and start taking a lot more working class and middle class kids, they should not be taxed as charities. They should be taxed as clubs. Why are they being and taxed as charities? Say I, I, I don't have a problem with that. What's that, why are, why are they taxed as charities to begin with? That doesn't even make any sense. Why would a private... Well, yeah, because they're incorporated as not-for-profit corporations that pursue the public good of education and research and learning. But what would you tax? Well, you could tax the returns to the endowment. You could tax the real estate that they own. Now, these are not small sums, by the way. The they 10 don't, biggest... They don't pay real, a nonprofit doesn't pay property taxes? Um, they do not pay real estate taxes. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay, that's, yeah, that's weird. Isn't but the endowment's a much bigger deal. So just to give you a sense of the size of this, uh, the 10 richest universities in America uh, have a combined endowment of roughly $200 billion. Wow. All right, now if you let those endowments keep growing in the future at the rate they've grown in the past 30 years, and you let U.S. household wealth keep growing at the rate it's been growing in the past 30 years, Sometime between 2100 and 2200, those 10 universities will own all of America. Well, trees all grow to the sky, but yeah, that's uh, it's still. Not going to happen. No, no. Not wow. going to happen. So the question is, how is it not going to happen? And it should not happen in a way that's consistent with the value of education and which spreads education across more pe people. So that's, that's one thing I do to sort of break up this elite, which is not break it up, but open it up. Well, I, I, you know, I, I started kind of as a skeptic of, of yours, but oh, um, how are you? My son Manny, my son, he's, a member, he's a member of the elite. Um, my, uh, uh, he goes, but uh, you're, you're a lot of what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. I have, I have to say, you did say one other thing. I, I heard a little bit of your. Um, Manny has a question. Manny has his hand up. I heard a little bit of your. Uh, ask a question. Yeah, you really have a question, yeah. Manny. What are you talking about? All right. You know what's <laughs> funny, Manny? I took my kids when they were five to the tax class I teach at Yale Law School. And six minutes in, my son Carl raised his hand and looked at me angrily and said, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so you said, I heard a little bit of your, your, your Sam Harris podcast. And, and, you made, and, I, and, I, and you said something that you teach your um, class on day one comparing government to private, the, the private sector. Oh, I, tell, I talk to my tax class about this sometimes, yeah. What was, what was, the, it, was a, it was a fun example, what did you say? Oh, you know, a lot of people say that the government is terribly wasteful and inefficient. Um, but if you're a typical middle-class American family making $60,000 a year, you probably pay $10,000 a year taxes. And for that, you get roads, schools, the police, the fire department, national defense, clean air, environmental regulation. I pay several hundred dollars a month to my cable company. 
for which I get, you know, nothing I want to watch and internet that <laughs> breaks down all the time. So I, I don't know why government is such a bad deal. Well, I mean, I, I, I like that example. I don't know that it's a fair, I mean, you chose the people making 60,000. Why not choose uh, people paying zero taxes and compare that to Comcast? Yeah, I, mean, um, I chose because I chose the average person. That's yeah. why. But uh, I mean, I, I will say that government is horrible. And um, I, I mean, so in, in my career as a businessman, I've accomplished a lot just by counting on the fact that government would be incompetent and, and not notice whatever it was that the law was supposed to do in terms of applying for things or whatever it is. Um, the, the example that one of the comedians always gives, Jim Norton, is that government ran off track betting, which is, you know, no. and, and went bankrupt. You know, so <laughs> who can go bankrupt doing uh, gambling? And there's yeah, a million yeah. examples and, and even the post office. And I, I would have to tell you as someone who lives in the private sector, uh, government really, really can't do anything right, which is not to say that we can have no government because some things only government can do. And, and so we're gonna have to do them extremely inefficiently because we still need them. But, well, but uh, I, I guess what I wanna push back a little bit, look, government is really annoying to deal with because they're a monopoly and they can boss you around. And, and a lot of the things they tell you to do don't make sense and they abuse their power in a hundred ways, small and as we're seeing now, large. Yeah, the police. Um, at the same time, at the same time, uh, the social infrastructure and physical infrastructure and environmental protections and just the quality of life that government manages to supply is pretty impressive. And it does that because there are a lot of people who are smart and well-meaning who work for the government. And, yeah, and so I, I guess what I want to say is both things are true. Yeah, I, I, would, I agree that there are certain, I've you know, given some thought to this at various times. Like, well, how did NASA happen? I mean, NASA is government, yeah. right? And I think what it is that when your government is, in the, is hiring people who are self-motivated for whatever reason, they're getting paid by the government, but the government is not their taskmaster. They're doing what they really believe in and really want to do. Yeah. Then the government can produce very good results. But when they're hiring clerks at motor vehicles or a program or bu bureaucrats, yeah. they're terrible. But but look, it's you, both. So unions make the problem a million times worse. But look, so here's a much less highfalutin version of this. Years ago, when my kids were, were your age, um, one of them ate some berries in our garden. And I didn't know what these berries were. So what did I do? Not I grabbed the plant. I ran a couple blocks away to the Connecticut Agricultural Station, ran in off the street, found some guy, and said, my kid just ate these. What do I do? And Lo and behold, said, oh, you go ask Jack over in that office. And I went over to Jack's office and Jack looked at it and told me completely confidently and accurately, that's what this plant is. Don't worry about it. Yeah. They didn't charge me. They didn't ID me. They didn't test me. Did they knew what they were school? doing. And they told me the answer. So that's kind of good. It's great. Uh, it, right? And that's not NASA. That's like some person working for the Connecticut Department of Agriculture. Yeah. How, how has this kid turned out ultimately? <laughs> well, you know, they're doing all right. <laughs> I, I would have to say that government is a d disaster. And, and also, I mean, we're way off. We're going to wrap it up. But we've talked about this before. We've gone wrong in some other way where, you know, the Empire State Building was built in, who remembers, 13 months. Uh, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was built in 13 months in uh, 1929 yeah. or something. Yeah. And yeah. we can't build a building in 10, 11 years Listen. now. You know, whenever I think about PPE and ventilators, I think in World War II, we built an aircraft carrier a week. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, what's, but, but I have to say, and now I'm revealing my politics. You know, at this moment, we have a federal government that is run by people who don't believe in government. Well, not the CDC, but yeah. I mean, the CDC. You know, but the CDC is getting defunded. It's getting shut out. It's get, right. So I, I know. I think that's not, not true. CDC. Center for Disease Control. Now, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't. I don't think what we're seeing is a result of defunding. I know there's been some factual debunking of that, but I, I just think things don't happen that quickly. But I will. I will acknowledge that we do. We do have a government of people who don't really believe in government. That's for sure. I don't. Whatever, we're, we're getting way off. You know, yeah. you'd be a good, you should come on another time and just talk, shoot the shit about general issues in the world because I think you have an interesting point of view. I'd love to talk and uh, I'm really glad you had me on. Thank you so much. Thank it's really you. a pleasure.
I'm uh, most Manny, grateful. You have a good night. Y'all have a good weekend. Listen, everybody, stay safe. You're in New York, so you're very much on my mind. Are you again? Where can everybody find you? By the way, what's going on with Tweed Airport? You guys getting a real airport or not? I don't think so. That, that you know, this is local interest, but if you wanted a story of dysfunctional government, we'd be here for a week. Daniel, right. where can everybody find you and follow your work if they'd like to? Uh, probably the best thing is at DS Markovitz on Twitter. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much. Listen, everybody have a great night. Take yeah. care. And Manny, where can we find you? Dead. Find the PlayStation. <laughs> tell, tell, you're tell Playing on Xbox One. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, there you are. <laughs> it is cute, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. All right. So, uh, so uh, once again, uh, podcast at comedycellar.com. If you enjoy hearing about um, this kind of stuff, let us know. If you prefer to hear comedy-related stuff, let us know. If you prefer a mix, a let us know. If you want more Manny, and I think you probably more do. Manny. <laughs> uh, so we'll see you next time. And you can uh, follow but, us on Instagram at live from the table. By the way, Dan, are you buying that if if, five, if, if, if the richest people in China emigrated to the United States, we, it wouldn't be awesome for the United States to have all that, that, that wealth come back to this country and have all yeah, those businesses be like American businesses? You know, I was never a big believer in the inherent uh, negative effects of in income inequality, as long as everybody has enough at the bottom. But, you know, I, I could be convinced. Yeah, I could be convinced too. We all want what's best for the country, right? I mean, if they it, don't have enough, that's the problem, isn't it? Well, that's a separate issue. If everybody has enough, does it matter if one, if if a hundred people or a thousand people have a ridiculous amount? He, he he acknowledged what it is that I think is really distorting there is that um, the one percent is not the problem. It's the point one percent. You know, the 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 difference between the one percent and the average person is minuscule compared to the difference between the 1% and the top 1%. I mean, the curve, it's ridiculous. You have people having billions of dollars comparing, he's, he's talking about a group of people that goes from $400,000 to hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, that's, yeah, that's crazy. Man, he's got the best smile. That is a beautiful oh, face. smile. You he, know what though? You know why I liked him? Is because he seems to agree with everything I think, except he can actually back it up with facts. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> he, he probably does agree with most of what you what what you think, and he is a smart guy, and I like his manner too. All yeah, right. Lovely. Who are you talking okay. about? We'll see you next time. Bye, 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 Manny. Bye, Manny. Bye. Bye. -bye.